0: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of educational programming the Guild provides here at Lincoln Center in New York City. This episode is part two of a Talking About Opera recording on Wagner's Ring Cycle. This mammoth work is comprised of four operas with interconnected stories that Wagner fashioned by combining various elements of old Norse mythology. For the next two weeks, we will release one episode per opera in a series of lectures featuring former Met Opera Radio broadcast host Peter Allen. Today we look at the second opera, Die Walküre.
1: Richard Wagner, in his major prose work entitled Opera and Drama, wrote with deep conviction about music and poetry, language and theater, and society, and about myth as an eternal source of wisdom. He then carried out his theories powerfully if somewhat inconsistently in the ring of the nibelung his celebrated cycle of four operas or dramas or music dramas he used all three terms and more and was satisfied with none of them and i'll cheerfully follow his example this is peter allen with part two of the series talking about the ring produced by the metropolitan opera guild in which we take up Die valkyra which is how wagner pronounced it with the accent on the first syllable Die Valkyrie is the second drama of the cycle, a cycle based mainly on the myths of Northern Europe and of Greece. Those two treasure houses of wonderful tales impressed Wagner profoundly, not only as a storyteller, but in his unending concern with the influence of art on society. But while some of the relationships between the characters in the ring have important echoes of Greek myths, the characters themselves are drawn largely from German and Scandinavian myths. I say largely because some of them are half invented by Wagner. The Nibelungs and the various sources on which Wagner drew were either demonic dwarfs who owned a fabled hoard of gold, or simply warriors led by the legendary German hero Siegfried, or soldiers of the historical Kings of Burgundy. Or consider the changes Wagner made in the story of how the shining castle Valhalla came to be built. In the first opera of the cycle, Das Rheingold, two giants, the brothers Fafner and Fasolt, built Valhalla for Wotan, the ruler of the gods. The solemn contract called for the giants to receive as payment, Freya, the goddess of youth and love. But the giants accepted instead, the Nibelung hoard of gold, including a ring that gives world power, but also. Is cursed, and the curse took effect at once in a quarrel over the ring. Fafnir killed Fossold. But in one of Wagner's sources, a medieval Icelandic collection of myths called the Prose Edda, one giant, and as such an enemy of the gods, disguises himself as a builder and offers to erect a castle in return for not only the goddess Freya, but also the son of the moon. The god Loki, Wagner's Loga persuades the gods to make that contract because it has a clause with a seemingly impossible condition that the castle must be completed by the first day of summer or the payment will be forfeited. But the builder has a marvelous horse that drags huge blocks of stone and it becomes likely that the deadline will be met. The gods are furious with Loki and threaten him with an evil death. So Loki changes himself into a mare, and seduces the horse, preventing it from bringing stone. The contract is not fulfilled, and in addition, the god Thor, Wagner's donor, realizes the builder is an enemy and slays him with his hammer. No gold, no ring, no curse. Wagner added those from other sources. Also in the Prose Prosetta, Loki as a mare becomes pregnant and gives birth to an eight-legged horse which becomes not only the favorite steed of odin wagner's wotan but also the sire of a fine horse named grani wagner's grana and wagner also changed the horse's master in the second major source the Volsunga saga grani is the horse of the hero sigurd wagner's siegfried but in the ring Grana is the battle horse of Brynhilda. She is Wotan's favorite among his nine Valkyrie daughters, warrior maidens in both myth and the ring, who bring to Valhalla heroes killed in combat to form an army defending the gods against giants and Nibelungs. In the Prose Edda, every day the Valkyries serve these heroes a feast with the flesh of a great boar that is reborn every night. Their drink is mead, from a prodigious goat. Now, in the first act of Die Walkera, all three characters are mortal. Well, two of them, Siegmund and his twin sister, Sieglinde, are children of a mortal woman, and Wotan, although we don't know that fact at first, and neither do the twins. Wotan, as their father, used the name Velsa, a name we won't hear until late in the first act. But Siegmund and Sieglinde Although separated since childhood, do know they are the children of Velsa, know they are Velsungs, in English, the Valsungs of the Valsunga saga. In that saga, there are several generations between the god and the twins, but Wagner tightens the relationship and so helps give the story a new emotional intensity and a remarkable unity. Especially remarkable, despite some flaws, since he drew on even more sources than just northern and Greek myths. For instance, in Das Rheingold, Loga tricked Alberich, the king of the Nibelung dwarfs, into changing himself first into a dragon and then a toad, a toad that was easily captured and with it the ring. That trick comes from a French fairy tale, Puss in Boots, the cat who tricks an ogre into changing into a lion and then to a rat a rat that was easily eaten. Wagner made still another change that is crucial to the moral and dramatic significance of the entire cycle. He added the idea that to gain power, one must give up love. Das Rheingold began as the Nibelung Albrecht, furious over being teased and frustrated by the Rhine maidens, gave up love so that he could seize the Rheingold and make from it the all-powerful ring. And when Loga tricked him out of it, Alberich pronounced his deadly curse. Now, the German writer Paul Becker long ago asserted that Wagner took from an opera he conducted as a young man both the idea of a choice between love and power and an important musical motif. The opera was Hans Heiling by Marschner. Heiling is king of the gnomes who sing of their treasure. In the red glow of an underground cavern, which anticipates the red glow of the underground cavern in Das Rheingold. Heiling does just the opposite of Albrecht. He renounces his crown for love. But it would be more than brave to say how consciously Wagner had Heiling in mind in writing The Ring. At the time of the premiere of Hans Heiling, Wagner was already writing his first complete opera Die Fane, The Fairies, in which there is a choice between love and and immortality we'll come back later to the musical borrowing from hans heiling but i don't think it's been suggested that wagner borrowed from anyone his striking portraits in music of what has been called all of nature a conductor of wagner's time complained that wherever you open the score of wagner's earlier opera the flying dutchman the wind blows out of it the storm in the dutchman rages at sea a remarkably different storm opens Act One of De Valkyra, a tempest on land. As the storm reaches its peak, that rising and falling motif is taken up by high strings and is joined by brass playing the motif of the thunder god Donner first heard in Das Rheingold to the words he da he da hey do In that first statement of the storm motif... One writer hears the steady hammering of rain, another finds swirling rain, a third hears hail, and a fourth, wildly swaying forests. For me, the prelude for many years has been simply a magnificent, violent storm. However. As I listened to it again recently, it suggested none of those details, but did suggest the dogged pattern of someone struggling through the storm, all the more so since Wagner soon modifies the storm motif into the mournful motif of Siegmund, the man who is struggling with the storm. Here in the cellos and string basses is the dying storm, and then played by cellos alone, a motif associated with Siegmund. The Siegmund motif is played twice at this point. The storm motif derives musically from one in Das Rheingold called the spear, a symbol of Wotan's power. The storm, as we'll see, is an instrument of Wotan's power. Here are the formidable spear motif and the derived storm motif. Wagner used the word leitmotif in writing only once that we know of. He wrote thousands of letters, and he was famous as a torrential talker, so he may well have said the word many times, but he often used the simpler word motif in writing about his own and other music. He named only a few of the motifs of the ring, and he used all of them with unprecedented flexibility, a flexibility that is enjoyable even when it perplexes the critics. And thinking of the famous motif from Das Rheingold the renunciation of love. Only he who renounces love can make the ring. Why is that music used at a heroic, triumphant moment of Die Walküre, which we'll hear late in act one? The fact that there are many answers, including one from the distinguished anthropologist Claude Lévy-Strauss, suggests to me that there is no real answer. But the fact also is that generations of opera-goers have found it eminently satisfying in the theatre. One critic has said it would take an extraordinary ear and mind to retain all the leitmotifs of the ring. Yes. But it's not necessary to retain them all, to richly enjoy these marvelous works. And usually it makes little difference that commentators have disagreed, sometimes slightly, sometimes not so slightly, over the naming of a given motif. For instance, here is the simple, lovely motif of Sieglinde. Which is introduced, as you just heard, and then repeated higher. It has been called the motif of compassion, of sympathy, of pity, of zieglander's pity, or simply zieglander A motif we'll hear shortly after hers is one of the most important and most debated of the ring. In other situations, especially if played rapidly, it is often called the motif of flight. But the late Derek Cook called it, I believe rightly, the main love theme of the ring. It has been pointed out that the first four notes of that motif, although very slow, are actually the beginning of a wedding march by Felix Mendelssohn. Dum, dum, da, dum, 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 dum. Was it a conscious borrowing by Wagner? Well, Derek Cook and the Cambridge University Press Wagner Companion, now out of print, has painstakingly traced a different motif by Wagner from its first appearance in Wagner's very early music for a play called King Enzio, through its appearance in every one of his operas except Siegfried. Cook concludes his essay about this almost lifelong use by Wagner of the King Enzio motif, quote, one problem remains. Was it conscious on his part? But that, of course, is another question, unquote. Whatever the answer to the question of borrowing from Mendelssohn, the motif that is sometimes called flight is the principal love theme of the ring. It's followed immediately at this point in De by another motif. In fact, the same note ends one and begins the second, but later they're heard independently. I think it will be helpful for the moment to call them simply Love Motif A and Love Motif B. Here is B. Now here they are together as written, except that for clarity we'll pause briefly during the note they have in common. Instrumental passages like these are frequent in Die Walküre, and according to rehearsal notes taken at Wagner's request by a musician named Heinrich Porges, if the singers on stage will silently sing to themselves what the orchestra is playing, their facial expressions will reflect the proper psychological nuances. Now back to the prelude which works a multiple magic, first simply as a piece of gripping music in itself. Second, for an audience that has heard Das Rheingold, and Wagner wanted the four operas to be heard on four consecutive nights, the Donner motif and the Storm motif are links between the first two operas, links all the more valuable since the human characters we're about to meet seem to have no connection with the gods and giants of the first opera, Das Rheingold, which Wagner said was a prologue to the trilogy of Die Valkyrie, then Siegfried, and finally Goethe Demmerung. The prelude to Die Walküre also offers the kind of contrast that Wagner so skillfully uses, the violence of the storm, setting off the weariness and melancholy of Siegmund's music and the tenderness of the music that follows. In addition, the storm symbolizes the violence and hostility that we will learn have always confronted Siegmund, a hostility created by Wotan to toughen the hero. A hostility that also creates in Siegmund a melancholy yearning for love. Wotan's storm dies down, and the Act One curtain rises in a room with walls of rough logs, but large enough to have a great tree growing through the ceiling. A young man, Siegmund, bursts in exhausted, glances about, the room is unknown to him, and flings himself on a bearskin in front of the hearth. A woman, Zieglinde, comes from another room, is surprised to see a stranger, and admires to herself his heroic, if weary, appearance as violins play her tender motif, which we heard earlier. The man asks for a drink. The woman brings water. They silently look at each other, And the love themes A and B express, as Wagner's stage directions put it, their growing interest in each other. The stranger asks who has refreshed his thirst and his spirit. But withholding one's name, as in Lohengrin, is frequent in myth, and the woman replies only that these are the house and wife of Hunding. Then she learns with compassion or pity that the stranger is wounded and weaponless. He tells her he must leave because he brings bad luck wherever he goes. But she replies, stay, you cannot bring harm where it already is. Again, they gaze at each other as we hear twice in the lower strings the sad theme of both of them, the motif of the Velsung's woe, or Velsung's bond of sympathy, followed each time by violins with the motif of Sieglinde alone. The stranger says he calls himself woeful, wavalt, and will wait for hunting, whose menacing music is heard almost at once. The quality of menace here has been ascribed to the so-called Wagner tubas invented by Wagner for the ring, but as the Wagner scholar Ernest Newman pointed out, this motif sounds sinister even on the piano. Hunding enters fully armed. He quickly notices that his wife and the stranger look alike. Both have the look of a serpent about the eyes. In myth, that look meant the sign of a race of dragon slayers. Hunding orders his wife to prepare a meal for us men and questions Weywald, who says his father's name is Wolf, a strong and warlike man with many enemies. In northern myth, wolf symbolized enemy, and one who put on a wolfskin took on its snarling character. One day, Weyvold relates, wolf and his son returned from hunting to find their home burned down, the mother dead and the sister gone. The orchestra, with the motif of hunting, tells us whose work that was. Father and son then lived many years in the forest, always under attack. After one battle, the father vanished, leaving behind only a wolfskin but the orchestra quietly tells us that the father returned to his true home, Valhalla. As Weywald says, the father found I not, den Vater fand ich nicht. Dem Vater fand That motif can stand for either Valhalla or Wotan. After the disappearance of Wolf, his son left the forest seeking happiness in the company of men and women, seeking love, as the clarinet tells us with theme B. But finding only hostility and misery. The woman asks how he lost his weapons, and he tells her a sad child called on him to save her from a forced marriage. He killed many of her oppressors, including her brothers who were forcing the marriage, but her anger then turned to grief, and she clung to her brother's bodies. Although he continued to defend her, she died. His weapons were hacked to pieces, and he fled. That is why joyful is what he's not called Nicht heißer. And as he says, heißer, we hear the motif of his race, the Velsungs. a motif sometimes called the Velsung's heroism. Hunding then reveals that his kinsman had summoned him to that same battle, but he arrived too late, and now he finds the enemy in his own house. They will fight in the morning, he warns, and he orders his wife to prepare his night drink. As the woman reluctantly leaves, she looks meaningfully at Weywald and then at the tree, and we hear, played twice very quietly, the motif of the sword, heard in Das Rheingold as Wotan was struck by a great but still unexplained idea. Left alone, Vevald cries out, My father promised me a sword in my hour of greatest need, and he uses not the name Volfa, but for the first time, Velsa. Velsa, where is your sword? Commenting on these lines, the American critic Jack Stein relates how Wagner first described, purely theoretically in opera and drama, the extremely challenging goal of linking words to music, even syllable by syllable, and then, in the ring, largely reached that goal. Both Stein and Millington the books are listed in the printed bibliography of these talks. Cite De Walkere as the peak of synthesizing words and music, and both offer illuminating analyses. Millington of Ziegland's sword narrative and Stein of Siegmund's sword monologue, which ends with that impassioned plea to Velsa. As if in answer to the cry, Velsa, where is your sword? The motif of the sword is heard again. The hearth fire suddenly flares up. Something glistens. Vevalc can't make out what it is, but the audience sees that it is the hilt of a sword plunged into the tree. Then, both on stage and in the orchestra, the fire slowly dies down, and the room becomes dark. Quietly, the woman returns. She has given Hunding a sleeping potion and has come to tell Vevalc her story. During her forced wedding to Hunding, an old man arrived who wore a broad hat pulled down where one eye is missing. He glowered at the guests but looked tenderly at her. In both myth and the ring, a one-eyed man is always Votan, and the Valhalla motif identifies the old man who thrust a sword deep into the tree. No one could pull it out, and she says she is sure who the old man was thinking of Elsa and whose the sword will be. If she could find that friend here, now, all her shame would be revenged, and she would take that hero in her arms. Vyvald embraces her passionately. She is all he has longed for. He claims both her and the sword. Suddenly, as if in a gust of wind, the great main door flies open, revealing a glorious moonlit spring night. Weywald exclaims that winter storms have yielded to the month of May. Winterstürme wichen dem Bonnemund. Spring has come, working wonders with lovely light and balmy breezes. Winterstürme wichen dem der Lenz. Auf She answers, "Do bist der Lenz, you are the spring, the spring I longed for in frosty winter.
0: <laughs>
1: A new motif... That of rapture is introduced with the words, O sweetest bliss, O zeersest avanna, from Siegmund. Music then heard twice from Sieglinde. And as the motifs mingle, the two begin to feel a dreamlike recognition of each other's face and voice. Finally, is your name really Weywald? Not since you love me. Was your father's name Wolfe? Only to cowards, his real name was Velsa. Then the sword is for you, and I give you the name I love, Siegmund. Zygmunt I am, let this be witness. And he seizes the hilt of the sword and sings to the motif of the renunciation of love. Holiest love, greatest need, burning love, yearning need. And he names the sword needful, Notung. Wrenches the sword free, and the woman at last gives her name. If you are Siegmund, I am Sieglinde. You have won both sword and sister, bride and sister. You are so flourish and volsung blood, so blued and velsungen blut. and the curtain is required to fall quickly. Wagner's first composition draft for the act we have just heard begins with his beautiful, careful handwriting, but it ends written with a careless rush of passion. Wagner identified Siegmund and Sieglinde with himself and Matilda Weisendonk, the wife of a wealthy man who was Wagner's early great benefactor. The manuscript of Act I is full of sets of initials standing for phrases like, Blessed be Matilda. What must the two have felt when Act I was performed at a party for Franz Liszt with a fabled Liszt himself at the keyboard and Wagner himself, renowned for his unmatched interpretations of any role, as Hunding and Siegmund? As you heard, the end of Act I is a marvel of triumphant passion. Quite another marvel is the way Wagner both retains and rejects elements of the barbaric Volsunga saga. In that saga, the incest is without love. The daughter of a king is married against her will to a man who treacherously causes the murder of her father. She begets sons who prove to be not heroic enough to avenge the slaying, so she changes shapes with a witch in order to sleep with her brother solely to produce a true pure-blooded Valsung capable of vengeance. And the son who results is given a harsh upbringing to develop his courage. No love, no melancholy. These came from no other source. Nor in the saga is Brunhilde the daughter of the god. She is the daughter of another king. Here too Wagner added an intense emotional element. The love between the god Wotan and his daughter Brunhilde that will bring a supreme poignancy to the final two acts of the opera. The prelude to act two gives a new urgency to the love motifs and foreshadows the famous ride of the Valkyries. When the curtain rises, Wotan and Brunhilde are together on the slope of a mountain, exuberantly happy. Wotan tells her that in the coming battle between Siegmund and Hunding, she is to give the victory to Siegmund. However, in a moment, Brunhilde warns Wotan to prepare himself for battle. His wife, Fricka, is approaching, and Brunhilde gladly departs. The relationship between Wotan and Fricka Mirrors, to some extent, that between Wagner and his first wife, Minna, which had been stormy at first, and later became increasingly so when Wagner, irresponsibly in her eyes, lost his position with the Royal Opera at Dresden. In Wagner's eyes, Minna spoke for the conventional. So, for Wotan, did Fricka. In a painful quarrel, Wotan defends the lovers because Sieglinde's marriage was forced Fricka then rages over incest. But as strings tenderly play love themes, including Wintersturme, Wotan advises her for her own happiness to bless true love. Now Fricka explodes, not least over Wotan's own adulteries. His nine illegitimate Valkyrie daughters at least respect Fricka. But these twins, born to a base mortal woman, threaten her laws and the rule of law. Wotan condescendingly explains, and he will amplify later, that his aim is to produce a hero, one who is independent of the gods, who will act freely for the gods. Fricka retorts, if Siegmund is truly independent, take away his sword. Wotan realizes he is losing, and he cries out, as you will hear now, Siegmund wanted himself in his need, his note. In the background is the motif of dejection or frustration, a twisted variant of the spear motif as Fricka answers, you created his need as you created the sword. Wotan assents to taking away the power of the sword, but Fricka knows his ways and insists further that he bar help from Brunhilde. She demands and gets his oath. As Fricka leaves, trombones remind us of the curse on the ring, and bassoons and others recall Wotan's frustrations. Returns. She has never seen Wotan like this. A motif called Wotan's despair or revolt is heard often as he bursts out with words that Derek Cook has said are not at all impressive in themselves. The great power, Cook said, lies in the music and in its resonances with other parts of the ring. The words do speak of Wotan's pain. O oh, sacred humiliation, O oh, shameful sorrow, distress of the gods, endless anger, eternal grief. I am the saddest of all. Here first is the short motif of despair, or Votan's revolt, and then the entire passage. agony of Wotan. And, yes, endless anger, and en lo, grim, was sung to the motif of du Lenz, the motif also called flight. Following Wotan's outburst, Brunnhilde pleads with him to tell her what's wrong, and he replies in a long narrative, a passage that Richard Strauss called the rarest miracle of Wagner's unmatched genius for transforming nuances of feeling into music. Grasping those nuances, or even the broader strokes, depends on having at least some knowledge of what Wotan is saying, which we'll explore in a moment. For those who don't know what he's saying, this scene can be long. For those who do know, it can be magnificent. One critic, who shall go nameless, said Wotan is a bore. Far more on target is Joseph Kerman in his book with the Wagnerian title, Opera as Drama. Kerman writes, quote, the principle behind such resumes is a genuinely dramatic one, to interpret past action in a new synthesis determined by fresh experience, unquote. Wotan now understands with profound anguish what he grasped only dimly before his encounter with Fricka, He is the prisoner of his own shameful actions. Wagner wrote to Franz Liszt that in the development of the entire ring cycle, this was the most important scene of all. In it, Wotan tells Brünnhilde, in addition to much that we already know, how the all-knowing Earth goddess, Erda, warned him in Das Rheingold of the coming end of the gods. To learn more, he went down into the womb of earth and forced knowledge from Erda by the magic of love. She bore to Wotan Brunhilde, and Wotan says he hoped to avoid the end of the gods by having Brunhilde and her eight Valkyrie sisters bring to Valhalla to defend it slain heroes made obedient by trickery. But if Alberich ever recovered the ring, he would buy away those heroes. As the guardian of law, Wotan cannot use force to take the ring from the giant Fafner. Only a hero, and held, independent of the gods, can do what I may not, was ich nicht darf. And we hear the motif of the need of the gods. And a later version of Need of the Gods. But Fricka has shown to Wotan's shame and self-loathing that in creating that hero, Siegmund, who is hardly independent, Wotan was merely deceiving himself, and now he must give the victory to Hunding. He must betray what he loves. Now all he longs for is das Ende, the end of the gods. And, he says, for that end, Alberich is planning. And we hear the motif of Albrecht's hatred. And soon after, a doomed version of the Valhalla motif. woman bought by gold is already carrying Albrecht's child. Even so, Brunhilde must protect the laws and honor of Fricka and side with Hunding. To Wotan's astonished rage, Brunhilde refuses to betray the one he loves. He threatens chaos and terror. If she disobeys, he storms away, and we hear a dispirited Valkyrie motif as Brunhilde is left alone. She too leaves, and the sad music of frustration gives way to the love themes, now played with the urgency of Siegmund hysterical flight from Hunding. Siegmund tries to reassure her as they enter, but she tells him he must leave her, as she is covered with shame. The shame of having belonged without love to Hunding. Wagner is quite clear that her shame has nothing to do with incest, and indeed, in opera and drama he defended the incest of Oedipus as having been shown in the myth not to be an offense against nature. Although he changed somewhat as he grew older, Wagner's attitude to the twins and to Wotan as well was clearly, if crudely, foreshadowed in his early opera Das Liebesverbot, The ban on Love, which he tells us in his autobiography, was a call for the glorification of unrestrained sensuality as against the hypocrisy of convention. Unfriendly critics of the English premiere of Die Valkyrie used words like loathsome and degrading about the opera. But one account tells us that the audience, including royalty, was captivated by it. Wagner's care to make the twins' love begin as sympathy and blossom in ignorance of their relationship and above all, as always, his music, have made this the most beloved opera of the ring, a story of conflict not only between love and power, but also between love and convention. After Ziegland's outburst of unconventional shame, her hysteria turns to hallucination. She sees Hunding's hounds tearing Siegmund's flesh, and she faint in his arms. Now, begins the famous, solemn, but ultimately passionate scene of the Annunciation of Death. The love themes are sounded with slow poignancy and introduce a new theme, that of fate. Which in turn introduces that of Brunhilde's announcement to Sigmund of Death. Last three notes restate the fate theme. Wagner was so moved in composing act two that he wrote of the Annunciation of Death, one can hardly call that composing anymore. Yes, and it detracts not at all that this magnificent, solemn motif echoes Marshner's Hans Heiling. I'm reminded of Shakespeare, who took from a contemporary almost word for word the description of Cleopatra on her barge and turned rich prose into magnificent poetry. And again, whether the borrowing was conscious or not is unknown and, to me, immaterial. In the Annunciation... Brynhilde tells Siegmund he is to follow her to Valhalla. Will I find Velsa there? You will find your father. May I take Sieglinde? She must breathe on earth. Then greet Valhalla, greet Votan, greet Velsa. I will not follow you. You have seen the searing sight of the Valkyrie. Hunding will kill you. Do you know this sword? I am promised victory. He who made it for you now decrees your death. Shame on him. If I must die, I'll go to the underworld. And Brynhilde is shaken. Does Siegmund value eternal bliss so lightly? Is this poor woman everything? Your beauty is dazzling, but your heart is hard. Don't talk of the unloving pleasures of Valhalla. With growing emotion, Brunhilde offers to protect Sieglinde. No one shall touch her. If I'm to die, I'll kill her first. And he is about to do that. But Brunhilde, profoundly moved by his intense devotion to Sieglinde, stops him and promises victory. She hurries away. The sky darkens with thunderclouds. And Siegmund hears the horn and hounds of Hunding. Siegmund rushes to battle. Sieglinde dreams feverishly of her mother and the flames that destroyed their house. She is awakened by a storm, and in thunder and lightning sees Brunhilde helping Siegmund against Hunding. But in a sudden red glow, Wotan appears, holds out his spear. No tongue shatters on it, and Hunding kills Siegmund. Brunhilde rushes away with Sieglinde and the pieces of the sword, and Wotan, with a contemptuous wave, kills hunting. Before he storms away to punish Brunhilde, his sadness at Siegmund's death is evoked in the orchestra. But even without the powerful music we are about to hear, how vastly different is Wagner's Wotan from the motiveless, colorless, loveless God of the saga. Furious Measures, The Curtain Falls on Act Two. I said earlier that the characters of the ring are taken largely from northern mythology, and that some of their relationships echo Greek mythology. There are striking echoes of the myth of Prometheus, who defied the Greek god Zeus, and in punishment was chained to a rock where an eagle tore perpetually at his liver. Both Prometheus and Brunhilde are children of earth goddesses, and there is no earth goddess in northern mythology. Both earth goddesses have the gift of prophecy. The earth goddess in Das Rheingold rises only half out of the ground, as do earth goddesses on Greek vases. Both Prometheus and Brunhilde defy the leader of the gods for the benefit of someone else. Both are punished by being confined to a rock. Both are confined there by a fire god. Brynhilde says later she is bound to a rock, which is not true of her, but is of Prometheus. And she feels later as if an eagle has come to tear her flesh, which is not true of her, but is of Prometheus. Even more Prometheus parallels were cited in an article of January 9, 1976, in the London Times Literary Supplement by Hugh Lloyd-Jones. Wagner planned the performance of the Ring as a festival, like the Greek drama festivals, and he wanted his festival to have the profound social importance to the community that the Greek festivals had for their community. He wrote in opera and drama that a proper reading of the Oedipus myth contains a history of humanity from the beginning of society to the downfall of the state. He wrote later that the story of the Ring contains the beginning and end of the world. His deepest admiration was for the great Greek dramatist Aeschylus, above all for his trilogy called the Oresteia, which is dominated by a curse. Let me add just one more parallel. Brunhilde is a spear-carrying warrior maiden who is the favorite child of the high god Wotan. Athena was a spear-carrying warrior maiden who was the favorite child of the high god Zeus. And now eight spear-carrying warrior maidens will gradually fill the stage when the curtain rises for act three of De Valkyrie after the most famous music of the ring, the most abused music of the ring, the ride of the Valkyries. <laughs> The ride of the Valkyries has been hugely enjoyed for its excitement, knowingly praised for its technical skill, and frequently condemned as vulgar and tasteless. But Derek Cook has asked what good would tasteful music be for Valkyries? To evoke these high-spirited women on horseback careening wildly through the air toward their meeting place on a rocky mountain, what could be more effective than those shrill strings and the galloping brass? The real trouble with the ride of the Valkyries, in my opinion, is that we know it too well. When it was first heard at a concert performance 14 years before the premiere of The Ring, it received what was called unparalleled applause. Perhaps for us today it does go on a bit long with the Valkyries' none-too-subtle joking about a stallion and a mare, but Cook also argues that the eight lesser sisters are a foil for Brynhilde. In Act Three. The eight are happily collecting dead heroes for Wotan and are expecting Brynhilde to arrive with Siegmund slung from her saddle, but are astonished to see her dismount with a woman and more astonished to learn as Wotan's thunderstorm approaches that Brynhilde has disobeyed him. She begs in vain for a fresh horse for Sieglinde. Sieglinde says she would rather have died with Siegmund and in fact asks to be killed. But she is both terrified and exalted. When Brunhilde tells her to live and flee from Wotan, she will bear Siegmund's child. The best place to hide from Wotan is near the cave of Fafner, the giant who has turned himself into a dragon and is guarding the ring, which Wotan avoids. Brunhilde tells Sieglinde to hurry and be brave. And we hear a glorious new theme, that of the unborn Siegfried with Brynhilde's words to Sieglinde, the noblest hero in the world you cherish in your sheltering womb.
0: In his, in his, in world, world, world,
1: and Brynhilde names him Siegfried, a name she interprets as joy in victory. Sieglinde replies, with an even more glorious theme, which we'll not hear again until the very end of Götterdämmerung, It has always been named the motif of redemption. But recently, it has been shown that Wagner himself called it the theme of praise for Brunhilde, a hymn to the heroine and the motif of glorification of Brunhilde. And it is Brunhilde who, to this music, is being described in the words, O oh highest wonder." Most glorious maiden, O herstes Wunder, herrlichste might. (laughs) And Sieglender flees with the pieces of the sword. Now from off stage with a furious storm motif comes the command of Wotan. Stay where you are, Brynhild. She asks her sisters to protect her and calm their father, and they crowd around to hide her. Wotan arrives and rages at these soft-hearted women pleading for Brynhilda. She knew his inmost thoughts and broke the holy bond between them. It was his wish that created her. Now she is a coward avoiding punishment. With touching simplicity, Brynhilda steps forward. Here I am, Father. Order my punishment. Wotan thunders that she is punishing herself. She will nevermore bring heroes to Valhalla. Nevermore hand him his drinking horn. Nevermore will he kiss her lips. She is banished from his sight. And here on the mountain she will sleep defenseless, the prey of any man who comes along. And if her shrill pleading sisters linger, they will share her fate. With wild screams the Valkyries rush away. Then... The sky grows calm and gradually night begins to fall. An eloquent long pause between them is filled with sad motifs, including that of Wotan's dejection or frustration. Brynhilde pleads with her father, was it so shameful, was, so schmählich? The motif of Brynhilde's reproach introduced by the bass clarinet. With swelling passion, Brindhilde pleads that she was only doing what she knew was closest to Wotan's heart, out of the love for Siegmund that Wotan had taught her. And as she approaches the peak of intensity with the words Der diese Liebe, the clarinet under Liebe begins a climactic version in the orchestra of Varis so schmelig. I disobeyed your command out of love the way Brynhilde talks to Wotan of Siegmund was one proof said Wagner that he was the heir of Mozart's sense of beauty but beautiful as the speech is the chords that follow it show that Wotan is still angry while I was suffering over what I had to do you were inspired by love let love lead you then not Wotan if I must belong to a man let it be no coward to shame both you and me. And we hear the Volsung motif. You, you, soul. Soul. you bred a noble race. Silence about the Volsung race. I have given them up with you. And we hear a new motif. As he condemns her to lie in deep sleep, in festen Schlaf, a magic sleep motif. <laughs> but Brunhilde falls to her knees, clasps Wotan, and begs, If I must sleep, Let me be protected by terror that will keep back all but the bravest hero. The motif of Brynhilde's sleep is heard often now and in the next opera of The Ring. And then Brynhilde asks, with what the score calls wild inspiration, to be surrounded by fire. Partly because this scene is so moving and powerful, it has provoked some irreverent comments. Shaw, in his famous little book, The Perfect Wagnerite, which for the most part is admiring of the ring, tells us that the magic fire is a fraud, a mere frightening illusion by that trickster god Loga, an illusion that anyone could just walk through. Perhaps, but going through fire, illusion or not, requires a hero. Wotan finally is deeply moved. He raises the kneeling Brunnhilde, gazes into her eyes, and as the orchestra sounds her sleep motif, begins his long, magnificent farewell. Leibvold, you brave, glorious child. Leibvold. recalls their past joys together, promises that only the greatest hero will wake her, and kisses away her godhood. She sinks unconscious in his arms. He gently places her under the branches of a tree and covers her with her shield, all to motifs including magic sleep, Brynhilde's sleep, the spear, and Siegfried. God calls on Loga
0: Lord, hey.
1: to surround the rock with fire. And Votan's final words in Divakira are: "Whoever fears my spear will never pass through the fire sung to the Siegfried motif. and Shaw's remarks on the magic fire is the comment on the last page of a Wagner biography by Hans Gall. He pours scorn on Wotan for what he did to his own son, Siegmund, and his own daughter, Sieglinde and Brynhilde. After which, says Gall, we sit there not indignant, but deeply moved. Then he asks, clearly thinking of the title of Wagner's book, Opera and Drama, is this drama... No, he tells us, it's only opera. But in effect, he has already contradicted himself by saying, and here he is right, that at the end of *De Valkyrie, we have all gone through the kind of emotional upheaval that Aristotle once defined as the effect of drama, catharsis through fear and pity. Well, Aristotle was talking about tragedy, not simply drama. And there will be more to say on opera and drama when we continue talking about The Ring with Siegfried, which, by the way, is drama, but hardly tragedy. Meanwhile, as flames fill the night sky around Brynhilde's rock, I'll leave you with what I hope you'll agree is a catharsis in the weaving together of Brynhilde's sleep motif, the fire music, and the music of fate in the final measures of Die Valkyrie.
0: Thank you so much for listening to episode 44 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or emailing us at lecturesoperaed.org. We will be back with you next week with episodes covering the remaining two operas, Siegfried and Götterdammerung. Until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.